I think it's also the difference between leadership and management. So managers are people who do um, things right. Leaders are people who do the right things, who will take decisions which seem crazy, but then end up being successful. So one of the, the goals or the motivations for writing the book is to give leaders the courage that if we are willing to step away from the comfort of calculations and spreadsheets and, and, and go with conviction and principles, this can ultimately lead to more value being generated in the long term. Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is always proudly presented by Headspring, using Learning Rewired as an opportunity to foster cultures of continuous learning. Businesses are under unprecedented pressure from multiple stakeholders to seek their profits in a responsible way. The common view is that aiming for positive social outcomes requires the sacrifice of financial success for investors, or in the opposite direction, that the pursuit of profit is always at the cost of social and environmental health. But could there be something fundamentally flawed in this perspective? Is there a different route that leads to increased business profits and greater well-being for all stakeholders? Someone who certainly believes so is Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of the norm-challenging book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, an absolute pleasure to have you on Learning Rewired. Welcome. It's a pleasure for me to be on. Thanks, Gavin. And Alex, I'd love to start with a quote, actually, um, towards the end of your book, Grow the Pie. And it's from the political satirist PJ O'Rourke. And I think it, it really sets the tone well for the conversation that you and I are going to have today. And the quote goes like this. In this zero-sum universe, there is only so much happiness. The idea is that if we wipe the smile off the faces of people with prosperous businesses and successful careers, that will make the rest of us grin. So, I, you know, before we dive into the different distinctions of growing the pie and pie growing mentality, what are your first thoughts on, on that comment by PJ O'Rourke? Yeah, so I think the PJ O'Rourke comment is, I think, highlights some of the large issues that we have within society is that in order to make us better off, we need to make other people worse off hmm. or alternatively, anybody's else anybody else's success is at the expense of us. So we can see this in trade wars, for example. So um, Donald Trump was arguing that trade wars were good because the Chinese stock market had been going down over the last four months. Mm. But China doing badly doesn't necessarily mean that the US does well. It mm. could be that the trade wars um, harm everybody. Mm. And right now, in terms of um, the potential bailouts, there's a discussion as to should the government bail out Virgin Atlantic, um, but it's actually um, bailing out EasyJet. And why people are objecting to the bailout of Virgin Atlantic was because Richard Branson has been really successful. Mm. Uh, and that could be either, number one, jealousy, or number two, the view that his success was at the expense of other people, when in fact he was able to be successful by challenging the incumbents in a highly um, uncompetitive industry, which is airlines, providing employees with, with, with jobs and, and providing customers with great, great products. Yeah, that, that zero-sum mentality really is the kicker, isn't it? Because, um, you know, regarding of, you know, regardless of how we might interpret div different business choices in terms of operational decisions, etc., the mindset, the mentality uh, that's at work there is really the source of so much conflict, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's really destructive because what this means, it means that we only look for win-lose solutions. Mm -hmm. We actually like to put other people down. So it might even be within an organisation 
um, we want to not help another division because if we think that if we do so, then that divisional manager will get promoted rather than me when actually the whole company is going to um, do worse. Um, so I also talk in the book about how a uh, lion can't catch a springbok if the lion was to just chase the springbok. Instead, mm-hmm. what the lion does is it waits for the springboks to start fighting with each other. And once they do, then the lion can catch a springbok. So mm-hmm. often we are too busy fighting with ourselves uh, rather than to rather than um, to help your whole organisation and think about the pie rather than just our slice. So when you speak about the whole organisation and the pie there, can you give me a little bit more detail as to what you mean by that? Absolutely. So, so when we apply the PJ or um, quote to a company, um, the analogy of the zero sum mentality is what I call the pie splitting mentality. So that is the idea that the value created by a business is a fixed pie. And therefore, any slice of the pie that goes to one party, let's say investors, is taken away from other parties, let's say workers and the environment. And so this is damaging in two ways. So number one, if you're a business leader, right, how do you make more profits? We take slices away from workers and the environment. How do we do that? We cut wages and we don't try to reduce our pollution. But on the flip side, if you're a, um, somebody who stands up for society, you might think that the best way to ensure that workers are treated well is to take slices of the pie away from investors. So let's pass some really strict laws to heavily regulate business. So either way, you business and society are enemies and they're fighting against each other in a them and us mindset, when actually um, the evidence is that businesses can be a force for good that not only deliver value to their investors, but also deliver value to societies as well. I think it's a fantastic observation that that idea of if you flip the coin both sides, you're getting basically the same approach just mm. from a different point of view, just from mm. a different end of the scale. Um, and in, in neither case does the overall group win. Somebody's always losing. This has become quite a political conversation in many ways. And I think a very valid and necessary conversation about the responsible management of businesses um, and the impact that they have on society. But perhaps where it becomes political is that it's become almost fashionable to point fingers at businesses and, and for many people to assume all businesses are on the take and that business itself is now inherently evil. But that itself, ironically, that mindset, that perspective mirrors the perspective of businesses that genuinely are doing bad work, isn't it? Absolutely. Because just as destructive for a business leader to think that profits are at the expense of workers so let's mistreat workers it's also destructive to think let's say you're a worker representative let's try to hamstrung and and restrict business because if you do that then business is not going to be competitive and and you're going to go bankrupt and therefore workers jobs are, are, are not going to be preserved so the greater the extent to which we see that we're in this one together i know that's sort of a cliched phrase but that's what the evidence suggests is that we want workers and investors and and customers to work together to create a company which not only delivers a lot of social value, but then also make sure that um, this social value is, is, is fairly distributed. Yeah, you know, what we found is eventually a legacy of an us versus them mentality. And, mm. and very often there's this dislocation where individuals or, or workers within an organization look at the organization as something big and powerful and have the attitude of, well, you know, they can afford to, to lose a bit of money. Well, there's assumption that those at the top do too well. And, you know, we've seen many examples um, in the press over the last few years of executives that are taking significant payouts. And the assumption there is that these executives are acting irresponsibly, perhaps uh, in, in some cases, sometimes they are acting illegally and genuinely irresponsibly. But 
I mean, as you go into detail in your book, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book, is that it brings quite a sober lens on these very controversial issues and, and kind of sees that not all cases are the same and that it requires a bit of analysis to pick out the fact that in situations, for example, where some executives are getting extreme pay, the contribution that they've brought to that business and directly to society far, far outweighs any kind of take that they are getting from the business exercise itself. That's absolutely right. And I think your um, analysis of a sober lens is spot on because we are actually not wired to think about these things with a sober lens because when we grew up as kids, right, a lot of situations we are in is, is a win-lose situation, right, with football or chess or whatever game you want to play if somebody wins the other person loses so we are wired to think that somebody's success is at the expense of other people Um, and on the ceo pay issue i'll take actually an issue an example not from the book because it happened after the book um was finished and this is going to be even more um current was bob Iger, the ceo of disney so last year he got a massive media furor because he was being paid 66 million euros so 66 million dollars and then people thought well that's at the expense of everybody else um were they not paid so much then disney could have offered more jobs but actually the sober lens is to say well how did he make that money now absolutely if he made that money by price gouging customers and firing workers then he didn't deserve it but he'd made this money as a byproduct of being a fantastic manager so disney had gone up in stock price by 600 percent since his tenure whereas the broader market had only gone up 150 percent now obviously not all of that was due to him it was due to the workers as well but even if 0.1 percent of that value was down to him then his pay was still justified also, we don't just care about shareholder value, we care about society, but he had created 75,000 jobs within Disney just due to being so successful. So this was not at the expense of everybody. It wasn't stealing pie from others, but a byproduct of growing the pie is that if you create social value, then everybody benefits, including the CEO. I mean, executive pay is a particularly sensitive topic. And I, and I admire your courage and willingness to take on those topics in your book. And you provide some excellent guidelines um, on those, on those kind of topics and how perhaps to see them, first of all, in a constructive way, um, but then also how to approach them from an organizational and from a leadership standpoint. I'm, I'm interested in executive pay specifically right now because there's a sense there of, okay, Bob Iger did really well for Disney. Disney did really well, employed 75,000 people. It seems on the, on the top of it that everyone really benefited. However, there's still this massive sense of inequality when somebody walks away with tens of millions of dollars from their tenure. Is that something that we that we can expect to be ameliorated in some way? Or is that just the numbers are fair and that's something that people need to make peace with? Knowing that there are always going to be payoffs in these very complex situations. Yeah, this is a good question. I think um, I've got two responses to that. The first is I think Iger's level of pay was fair if um, he would have also been punished had Disney's not done badly. So I think rewards mm. for success are fair if you're also punished for failure. And I think indeed some of the great, um, that some of the most fair pay schemes do that. So what they effectively do is rather than paying the CEO in cash, they pay him or her in shares. And so what that means is that they're effectively an owner of the organization and they're they're fully invested in it. So if they do really well, then automatically um, the the value of the shares will will go up. Just like any investor in Disney, they benefited from Bob Iger being so successful, even though they didn't contribute to any success. Similarly, if he was paid in shares and if he hadn't done well, those shares would have fallen in value, so he would have been accountable. 
So I think rewards for upside are fair as long as they would also be counterbalanced by punishment for the downside. And indeed, if you're given shares, then that automatically is the case because if the stock price goes down, your shares go down in value. But the second thing is I think it's also important to make sure that it's not just Iger who benefits because, as I mentioned earlier, if a company does well, it's not just due to the CEO, it's likely due to other people. And so one thing that I'm a big advocate of in the book is the idea of um, rewarding all employees with shares, not just the CEO, um, because that further highlights the fact that there's alignment between the CEO and workers, everybody's in it together. And if the pie grows, then employees also deserve to benefit from it. So, I mean, if you look at Disney's success, and I mean, it's very clear then, I mean, you make suggestions of how to even further improve the value to employees of the organization doing well. You've spoken before, and I'd love the great quote from Milton Friedman, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to increase its profits. What is the primary motivation there in a pie growing mentality? Is that what we're talking about here? Or are we talking about something slightly different where if an organization automatically chases high profits, uh, that's the benefits of that should filter through to society? Or are we talking about something slightly different? Yeah, so that's an important distinction. So let, let's, let's first start with the Friedman quote. So the article's called The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits. And I think this quote has been misinterpreted really widely. So anybody who wants to be a critic of business will highlight this quote to stress how narrow-minded business is. So Friedman is saying we should entirely focus on profits. But the reason why he said that is not so much because he's narrow-minded and says that people should not care about the environmental workers, but it's because he said that a company is forced to care about society. So it has to treat its work as well, or they'll leave. It can't pollute the environment. The brand will be hurt. So um, even if you focus on shareholders, you will care about stakeholders. However, your concern for stakeholders is purely instrumental. It's only a means to an end. You only think about investing in your workers because you think you will earn some profits as a byproduct. And the problem with the instrumental approach is that it requires you to calculate. Now, calculation is good for many investments. It's good for investments in, say, physical capital. So if I was to build a factory, I can calculate how many widgets the factory will produce, how much I can sell them for, and the money that I'm going to be making. However, it's much harder to do that with workers. So if I give them days off of volunteering, how much more productive will they be? It's really hard to calculate that. And so if we go back to the instrumental approach, where everything needs to be justified with a mathematical calculation, there will be many good investments, like treating your workers better, which won't actually be made. So if you go back to the start of your question, Bevan, about caring about your workers intrinsically because you actually just care about them, I think that's a better approach because that means that you are free from having to reduce every decision to a mathematical calculation. You are going to invest in their workers because they're humans, they're your colleagues, and you care about them as people. And what I'm doing in my book is to show with rigorous evidence that that ultimately leads to profit. So even though profit was not the motivation for treating your work as well, you're doing this out of humanity, out of concern, the higher profit manifests anyway. Am I understand you correctly, Alex? In the one hand, we take a profit-centered approach with the view that this will benefit stakeholders. But in the second view, in the, in the kind of the pie growing view, we take benefit to stakeholders as our primary objective and assume that profit will happen as a byproduct. Yes. So that's the primary distinction. Do the outcomes look the same and just the paths of getting there are different? Yeah, so the outcomes are quite different because one of them is instrumental, which is profits first and purpose is the means to an end. And the other is intrinsic, where um, 
purpose is first and profits are a byproduct of doing so. Now, they would lead to exactly the same outcome in a world of complete certainty. So if I could predict the effect of investing in my workers on profits, then I would make that investment even under the instrumental approach. And so I would just invest just as much as I would under the intrinsic approach. But in the real world, we don't have certainty. So it's not like a finance textbook where they're giving you all of the cash flows that come from investments. You can't predict the impact that um, treating workers well has on profits. So doing this intrinsically is going to lead to different outcomes from doing it instrumentally. So just as an analogy I'd like to use, um, probably the listeners here, you'll have friends in your own network or colleagues in your own network, some of whom are just nice people. They will help you because they are kind and altruistic. There's others who will help you because they think they're going to call on a favour in return. So as a result, they're only going to help sort of the powerful people in their network and not the sort of less powerful people. But... Um, in the long term, it's actually the first people who are going to be successful because the second set of people, maybe unexpectedly, some junior person who they mistreated ends up becoming senior and then doesn't sort of help them as well as they should have been. So because we live in so much uncertainty, I think that the idea of calculating everything, even though that's something a finance professor would love to advocate, I just think is unrealistic. You know, the fact that it's unrealistic, I think, is a, is a very strong point. However, is, is there not something in that sense of calculation that makes human beings just naturally feel safer in making decisions, especially at the top, having that foundation of calculation as, I suppose, almost a form of evidence, even though it's not genuine evidence, makes them feel more supported in making decisions, especially at times like this when, you know, the world is turned upside down. Many people are in a very contracted mindset, not really sure how to respond to this in a very constructive way, I'm trying to make decisions in darkness. Having something to hold on to, some kind of security of support, like a calculation doesn't that make them feel safer? Does that not also have its own, I suppose, intrinsic value to the, to the person, at least possibly the organisation? It, it probably does. But that's, I think, what, what courageous leadership is about. It mm. is about doing things where, where um, you're, you're not going to feel safe. So anybody who's made it a, fan, a great innovation, let's say launching self-driving cars or electric cars or a, a new drug, I think the calculation would, would have never led you to do this because the odds are completely stacked against you. I think it's also the difference between leadership and management. So managers are people who do um, things right. Leaders are people who do the right things, who will take decisions which seem crazy, but then end up being successful. So one of the, the goals or the motivations for writing the book is to give leaders the courage that if we are willing to step away from the comfort of calculations and spreadsheets and, and, and go with conviction and principles, this can ultimately lead to more value being generated in the long term. Now, before my current life of poverty as a professor, I used to be an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. And there at Morgan Stanley, I was a junior analyst, so I was right at the bottom of the ladder. And so often what a senior banker would have you do is to produce a huge amount of analysis. So these massive what we call pitch books of every scenario where then the manager director to go into the meeting armed with this book. And actually often he or she just needed this just as, as, as um, comfort, just so that, oh, the um, client wouldn't ask them a question which wasn't in, in the book. That was terrible because that wasted so much time for the juniors. And on the rare occasions that I was actually allowed to come to the meetings, I was shocked by sometimes that the books were not even opened. So what made some of the great bankers there different was the courage to go to meetings without massive amounts of, 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 of analysis. Obviously, you wouldn't go unprepared, but there's a big difference between going prepared and being obsessive and actually not 
not um, realizing the cost on the junior employee's time. Absolutely. And even within that approach of high levels of control, you obviously close the door to so much potential creativity and innovation. And I mean, thinking beyond your example to other forms of business decision making in other industries, having that real focus and or to use your word obsession on control actually stunts growth in an innovative and creative way. I mean, just to go back to your, your, your delineation a little bit earlier between an example of two kinds of people, one who's motivated intrinsically and one who's motivated by the potential of reward further down the line. You know, leadership and people are not this binary, obviously, mm. but you know, in leadership, you're going to get examples of both. And I suppose those who are intrinsically motivated to inverted commas, do the right thing by their people, by their customers, et cetera, are, I suppose to a sense already the converted audience. Um, mm. And what I really appreciated about your book was there's obviously a whole bunch of people who have that similar intrinsic motivation. Personally, maybe it's just because, you know, it's the thread of humanist in me, but, you know, I don't believe there's a very large percentage of human beings that are motivated purely by the desire for personal reward. There's a kind of an in-between there, isn't there? You know, a segment of leaders, a segment of managers even, who would love to do the right thing, in inverted commas, but feel overwhelmed by the level of risk or have an impression of the level of risk. From your experiences, you know, is that a fair assessment of the lay of the land for leadership or, or management? Yes. And, and so I think there's what, what holds leaders back. I think it's a couple of things. So first is, is perhaps not being fully aware of, of the business case uh, for purposeful business. So um, I think this is one motivation writing the book is for me as a finance professor to come to this question. Why? Because often when I uh, speak um, at conferences on the importance of purpose and responsibility, people introduce me as a professor of finance and the audience like does a double take because often the finance department of a company is the enemy of any purpose-led initiative because they think, well, purpose is at the expense of finance. But what my research shows is that anybody with that mindset is actually not doing his or her job as a finance manager well. The second um, reason why companies might be held back is let's say they agree to be more purposeful. They actually don't know how to put this into practice when the rubber hits the road. So as an analogy, so let's say um, you're a smoker and, and you look at all the evidence saying that your health will improve if you give up smoking, but you don't know how to do that unless you have like a support group or, or something else just to, to help you along the way. So, so what I try to do in the book is not just have sort of food for thought, okay, be more purposeful, but a plan of action, how to put it into practice. And one of the big elephants in the room is this, is that if a company is run with the idea of maximizing shareholder value, there is, at least in theory, a framework for making decisions. So you calculate the effect of the decision on shareholder value. If it's positive, you make the decision. If it's negative, you don't. Mm -hmm. Now, if shareholder value is not the objective, right, how do you make decisions? What is the benchmark for this? And so what I try to do in the book is to go through three principles that managers should apply in order to decide whether to take an investment or whether to turn it down. I won't go through the, the three principles here just because it'll take me a while to go through that. But I will say it's important to have this decision-making framework because some advocates of responsible business say you should do everything that you can to help society. But that's just unrealistic because if you take every single investment, shareholders are, are not going to be given a return and the company's not going to be surviving in the long term. Mm. 
the, those three guiding principles in decision-making are very strong, as is the evidence that supports them. From my point of view, in reading this book, there was something that really struck me was for those leaders who really want to commit more to a purpose-driven approach, but feel unsupported perhaps in the structure of their organization, uh, perhaps by the board, perhaps by the shareholders themselves. There's a lot of strong evidence here that really provides support for an intelligent move into, into that approach. Having said that, there, there are qualities here that seem to kind of peak for leaders in the world that we are running now. So beyond kind of technical skills, you know, what many have been called fond of calling soft skills is kind of the sense of emotional intelligence or self-management, the ability to to handle decision-making in really difficult situations, et cetera. The, the kind of the empathy, the level of connection with other stakeholders in the organization that really helps one develop that intrinsic motivation, that connection to human beings and their own well-being and their kind of future. These seem to be more prominent skills in this approach. Is that right? Absolutely, because I, I think these softer skills are things which are really difficult to, to replicate. So, and, and, and indeed, if we think about what the effect of, say, artificial intelligence will be, they will be able to do the hard skills such as complicated valuation. They will indeed be able to do some investment analyses, which involves, say, crawling the web for loads of data about a company's sustainability and implementing into a strategy. But I think to truly discern these different decision. So when I've got a trade-off, let's say I'm an energy company and I'm thinking whether or not to shut down a polluting plant, because if I do so, it will be good for the environment, but it's going to be bad for employees. Those are things that we can't outsource to artificial intelligence. And those are the the skills, the judgment type skills, which I think are going to be even more important um, over the next couple of decades. That makes a lot of sense to me. So it strikes me that we're moving here from speaking about organizations and businesses and applying a pie growing mentality, which is really about being motivated principally by increasing stakeholder value and that motivation leading to shareholder value. Mm. Um, And that's the sense of this growing pie that everybody benefits more. Even if your percentage of the pie might get less in some examples, you still benefit more in the long run, which is an amazing image, an amazing vision. To be honest, when I first read it in your book, I thought, well, that sounds lovely, but you know, how could that possibly be realistic? The middle section of the book is you know, really strongly supported by evidence. But now we're arriving at challenges to leaders as individuals in manifesting and, and implementing these kind of guidelines, this kind of approach, this kind of thinking, this change of mindset. And, and yes, your book provides some of those guidelines. Do leaders as individuals not even just leaders, anyone in an organization, is is there a way of applying the same kind of mentality in a personal way rather than just looking at the organization? Is there there a personal version of, of a pie growing mentality? Yes, absolutely. And this is, again, to go to the um, importance of a, a person's purpose. And we've, we've mentioned the word purpose a, a few times, but not actually defined it. So let's actually define what I think we mean by purpose. Often people think about purpose as being about altruism. So a purposeful business is an altruistic one. But actually, that's not what the word means. The word purposeful means targeted and focused. So a purposeful meeting is a meeting with a purpose, with an objective. And I think this is what applies to personal purpose as well. So for a company, a purpose is how is the world a better place by my company being here? I think that's the same question for a person's purpose. So how is the world a better place by me being on on this earth? And the important thing is that the answer to this must be focused. So I can't say my purpose in life is to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher and to help the homeless. I can only focus on, on, on one of those. So I have defined my purpose as being to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. So that's a very sort of narrow and targeted purpose. Why? 
because it means that I'm only interested in academic research to the extent to which it affects how people practice business. I'm not interested in academic research purely because it's intellectually interesting. And that means, well, that ties and tells me what to do. So I'm really happy to be on the Headspring podcast, for example. But it also tells me what not to do. And I think why purpose sometimes gets misinterpreted is people doesn't, don't realise that in order to be truly personal, you have to say no to a lot of things. Because to do things no one else is doing, you have to not do things that everybody else is doing. So for me, what do I not do? I don't spend much time in academic conferences, even if I'm invited to speak at a really prestigious conference or at a really prestigious university. Because if I did that, I would not have the time to keep my boots on the ground and to stay with the real world and to make sure that my research is relevant for practice. Yeah, I mean, that differentiation between purpose and altruism, I think is really valuable. I mean, there are a lot of people who hear the idea of purpose-driven business and immediately go to an image of something quite fluffy. Everybody shows up every day just out of love and compassion and to do the right thing, because I think there really is a very genuine part of that in powerful organizations. You hear leaders talking about love, not in a fluffy way, but in a very authentic and grounded way, the kind of love mm. for your work, the love for the purpose of the organization, etc. And this isn't a touchy-feely Valentine's Day kind of love. It's more of a, an authentic drive that comes from, that comes innately within the individual. And I think that the more we bring that kind of language into this kind of conversation and de-fluff this kind of conversation, the easier it is for people to accept the evidence-based connection between profitable success for an organization and the intrinsic motivation towards doing good. Yeah, so this is why I decided to write that the final chapter of the book applies the concepts of, per, of, of business purpose to personal purpose. And I realized that when I was doing that final chapter I'm taking a risk in doing this because some people might think oh uh, if you're writing about personal purpose isn't this fluffy or, or, or cliched or, or, or trite but I I thought what was important was for me as a finance professor to show that I actually think these, these things are, are really real and re really material I'm trying to approach this in still a concrete way and um, to think about how we can think about personal purpose as not being fluffy or being all things to all people, but being targeted. And that's why my definition of purpose involves knowing where you are going to move the needle, but also recognizing where you're going to scale back and, and not invest your time. Just like somebody who accepts every invitation to serve on a non-profit board is probably going to be less um, useful than somebody who only accepts these things uh, seriously. So, effectively. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, that's, that's an important practical step is, you know, essentially making clear selections based on personal purpose. But where else do you suggest leaders start just even from their personal point of view before moving into a collective point of view on steering organizations towards a more purpose driven approach? Yeah, so, so um, I learned quite a lot from um, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite business book of all time. And uh, he has a chapter on um, time management, which is called First Things First, which is his chapter, which is his third habit. But before that, there's habit two, which is begin with the end in mind. So why that comes first is that you can't think about time management without thinking about what is the objective to what you want to achieve with your time. So you'd never set off on a journey before you knew what the destination was. So even if you were the greatest driver, you, you could still be driving to the wrong direction. So what he says in habit two, in terms of begin with the end in mind, is that everybody should come up with a personal mission statement. So this is something that just describes what you want to achieve in life. So for me, it was to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. I think for Oprah Winfrey, it was to be a teacher 
um, other people. You can find this by Googling on the web for both ordinary people and celebrities. And once you've come up with that mission statement, which should be short and focused, then you can think about, well, what are the things that I'm doing which are not actually helping me on that statement? Can I, can I scale those back? And what are the other things that I need to be doing more in order to make sure that I, I, fulf- I um, fulfill this? Yeah, I, I love the the very practical view there. If I remember Covey's book correctly, you know, he's got a strong focus on a mindset of abundance over, over scarcity. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap from what I can understand between the pie growing mentality and just that attitude of abundance, which is what, what lies at the seed of that attitude of, you know, of, of Covey's approach. And also I'm hearing it at the seed, at the root of pie growing approach is a sense of trust. Is this, mm. uh, this sense of trust in, I mean, sure, your book is full of evidence, but there's still... A step that needs to be taken in the reader's mind to trust that evidence, no matter how compelling, and trust that things are going to work out well, that things are going to lead to a better good for everyone. I mean, a better result for everyone and a better result for shareholders. Is that trust a major hurdle um, in your conversations with people as you've introduced this concept to people? Do you find that people are quite resistant, or do you do you do you find a distinct well? Do you find a distinction with, between people who take these ideas on easily and quickly, and those who need a lot of convincing? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the roles of evidence is to help build trust. Um, but actually, that the more conversations I have with people, it's not that they think, oh, what he's shown has been earth-shattering and I never thought of this before. I would love to say that's some of the reaction my work gets, but it's not. Instead, it's, it's sort of things that people had a sense of being right. So, so they had this sense that actually, yes, if we start with society first and the company will become more successful as a byproduct, but they haven't sort of had the courage to, to act in this way because all they had was a hunch. And then what I did was I, I showed this is true in the data. Or even say in, in more... Um, specific things such as there's a chapter on CEO pay which is chapter five and there um, one of the people I work most with as a practitioner he's, he's a partner at um, PwC he always had the sense that the way that bonus targets are, are set up leads to short-termism but but didn't really have sort of the large-scale evidence to prove it he he sort of sensed this in the the handful of companies that he advises but he's obviously not advising every single company in the world but um, what the evidence showed was that what he was suspecting to be the case was true on large scale so I think it's not that the ideas are completely radical and revolutionary even though I'd love that to be the case instead it's providing the backing for what people sort of sensed was going on anyway but really didn't have the the data there to show it Mm. so that sense moving from that sense into action is really I suppose where we're at in this stage of business cultural social evolution where we're also at is in the midst of a global pandemic and and Mm. a crisis that's literally unprecedented in its complexity its systemic effects you know multi-systems effects do you think a crisis of this kind, I mean, you know, crises, personal and collective are always traumatic to some degree, but they can often accelerate change, positive change, and lead to greater impetus to change in positive ways, regardless of the trauma. Do you think we can expect to see that as we sort of reset from the COVID-19 global crisis? Or is this going to be make it more difficult for leaders to implement change that they feel is for the betterment of all? Yeah, so I'm quite hopeful. So, so while obviously the crisis has been really devastating, I do think if there, there could be some silver linings in that it accelerates the, um, the idea of serving society. And in particular, if we go back to the pie growing versus pie splitting lens that we started this conversation with, often people think that responsibility is about pie splitting. So paying your workers more, paying fair tax and um, 
serving the environment. And don't get me wrong, those are important things. But I say it's about pie growing, sort of innovating to come up with new ways to serve society. And I think what the, the crisis has done was highlight the importance of pie growing. So why? Let's give you a few examples. So there are some actions which companies have taken in the crisis, which have been pie splitting actions, which have still been good actions. So these are executives and investors taking less of the pie for themselves to give more to others. So let's say um, CEOs, some of them are working for zero, zero pay. Um, you have companies like Disney who are guaranteeing pay all their workers even though the parks and cruises are shut you have unilever giving away 100 million euros of food and sanitizer um, to society but why i think we need to move beyond thinking that responsibility is only pie splitting is that not all businesses can give up slices of the pie so what if you're a small business and you don't have 100 million euros lying around Mm. or if you're a big business but you can't keep paying your workers because your business has been hit like Qantas Airways. Or what if you're a business in a completely different industry where you don't have food and sanitizer to give? So what the idea of growing the pie is, is about actively thinking creatively and innovating. And so that's how every company can help out in this crisis. So let's say, for example, Chelsea Football Club. Well, you might think, what does that have to do with the crisis? But what they do have is a hotel. And they're using the hotel to give it to doctors and nurses so that they can stay at the hotel after working in the hospital. They don't have to commute all the way home. Hmm. Or you could have a company um, such as um, Burberry, which makes luxury clothes. They're now choosing to make um, gowns. Or you could have a really small business. So I go to this um, brutal gym in London called Barry's Boot Camp. And there, well, they're a small business, so they don't have money to give. One thing they are offering is um, free online fitness classes through, through Instagram. Okay, but you might think, well, you don't need too much innovation for a gym to think we can offer free fitness. But one of the good innovations they've done is the following. So the desk staff at Barry's Boot Camp, their main jobs for some of them is they're actors, but they take this desk job because acting is obviously a volatile um, profession. So as they're actors, their great um, skill is, is uh, entertainment. And you might think, how can entertaining really help in this crisis? But what we do have is a lot of parents, working parents with their kids at home, and they can't work with their kids being at home. So what these people are offering is a free storytelling by Zoom. And that has a huge effect because it now takes the load off working parents. So just by thinking creatively as to how you can create social value is really freeing and empowering because it means that you can create value even without donating hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think that's important. Hopefully, if we permanently have this mindset as to how can we use what we have to create value, this means that everybody can play their part, not just the large companies with a lot of accumulated profits to, to give. And Alex, for those of our listeners who would like to obtain a copy of Grow the Pie, where can they, when they, where can they find that? Thanks. Yes, the book is called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. And so you can get it at any standard bookstores such as Amazon. And it's available in three formats. So there's the hard copy, um, there's also the Kindle, and there's the audio book, which I decided to narrate myself. So normally these things are narrated by a, a professional actor. But for me, this is something that I personally care about. It's not mm. just a topic of research, but it's something that I, I care about. So I wanted to narrate it myself. Also, the website of the book, 
is growthepie.net and and so um that has the reviews of the book by other people so yeah you might want to take a look at that before deciding whether to get it and also um there have been events which have happened since i finished the book and i'm covering them on a on a blog on the website so hopefully those will be of of use as well just to keep up to speed with the developments that we're seeing in responsible business yeah i mean i can attest the fact there's a lot of useful content there but i highly recommend diving into the book the level of detail is both impressive and also very reassuring to those who want to make better decisions and move into the space fantastic alex thank you really wonderful insights and uh, really appreciate your your commentary on what i think is an incredibly important topic in the current times we're living in great thanks so much for having me Ben. thanks alex keep well thank you for listening for more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.